Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. Well, this week, uh, you know, my mind's all about uh, March Madness. So, uh, which is a nice break from all the other, the usual madness. (laughs) There is a lot on the news tonight. I just, I caught a minute of it. We're taping kind of during it. And, uh, and there's a lot of talk about an indictment that could come down against Donald Trump candidate for president being a former president being indicted in some sort of criminal activity. Uh, and, and so that's, I think kind of interesting, but we're, but you have to kind of go to Fox to see that uh, representative Comer, I think it's James Comer from Kentucky, uh, who has been investigating Biden is saying that they have found the bank records that prove, and I don't know that this has all yet been fully, you know, checked and rechecked, but uh, he's saying his committee has the bank records that show nearly a million dollars going from a Chinese state connected entity. And I don't know all the details about what exactly the connections are, but it, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of these that have, have I mean, the bank that, that uh, uh, Hunter got money from to invest and so on uh, was certainly a state enterprise, a state connected well, sure. enterprise. And, and so, but that's supposedly somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars to uh, James's brother, to Hunter, to, um, oh, I had her name a second ago. Is it Hallie? Uh, who's uh, Bo's uh, widow, the deceased son. Um, and, you know, throughout this whole thing, and, and of course, the, the funny thing is, I don't know how much Fox is going to focus on, on Trump maybe being indicted. Uh, I mean, when it happens, they'll cover it, which is in some ways saying better about Fox than it is about the Washington Post and the New York Times and and the other networks, because oftentimes they don't cover it. I wonder if they'll cover anything about what uh, Comer is saying, uh, Representative Comer. And, and you know, well, let's get the information. Maybe maybe they're taking a wait and see like they did with the Hunter laptop. But, I mean, we do live in a time in which the media will actively misrepresent and mostly refuse to represent what's happening if what's happening might cause us to vote or feel in any way unlike they want us to feel or vote. Well, sure. That's uh, almost a given now, isn't it? You you kind of saw it in our uh, comment section this week. Because we, yes. we had we talked about the banking, we had been talking about shenanigans with money this week. There was there was two or three pieces about that. Well, uh, that that's so much of the week, and and you suggested, hey, let's let's uh, talk about some of the comments. I have to say, on on Mondays, can you bank on it? Uh, which was really not about the bank crisis, uh, but about uh, three guys, uh, singer John Rich politician uh, Ben Carson and who's former uh, medical doctor and uh, Larry Elder, who's the radio guy out in California who ran for governor and so on. But they've started a bank and a bank that won't, uh, you know, cancel you if they don't like your politics. That's their stated, you know, uh, niche in the marketplace is we won't cancel you. And uh, I kind of think that's probably a good niche because it, it's uh, it it's sure is attractive to me. But uh, Pam, who is a regular uh, commenter, uh, she's never liked anything I've written, but she spends a lot of time at the site. And and uh, and in some ways, that's kind of good. You know, it keeps things fresh and little uh, back and forth. But she was the only commenter on Monday. And I have to say, I just loved her, her comment, even though I don't quite agree, but she said three losers start a bank. What could go wrong? So Pam, I just, I I salute you because this is a good comment. Um, I think, uh, I think it's a good idea. I have a feeling none of those three are going to be doing a lot of the actual banking uh, that they're kind of the PR front. 
Uh, but I think it's a great idea. But uh, I do think that we ought to remember that uh, in stuff that we humans do, it's incredible how much can go wrong and does go wrong. And uh, it's tough to make things foolproof because the fools are so incredible. But in this case, these aren't losers. I mean, these are three very successful men. Ben Carson is smarter than you and me, and, and he's a you know surgeon. Though I don't consider him a, a font of wisdom in politics, but still, he's not an idiot and he's not a loser. No, Neither is no. Larry Elder. None, of these, really none of these people are losers. And the truth is, it's the sort of thing Pam's you know on the left, and uh, which which is not that's that's not the problem with Pam. Uh, the problem with Pam that make a great little uh, story but uh uh the problem is the jump to name calling the the kind of demonization of opponents and the failure to grasp the argument the real argument not the ad hominem and uh and that's that happens so much on the left where if some conservative says something it's well that's that's so hurtful I mean, this is someone who's going to call everyone a loser. But if you said anything that that just was a fact about a group that she thought ought to be protected, and I'm surmising some, but this is the the left's position, um, then it's going to be, oh my goodness, how how vicious and evil you are. And I, you know, look, it's in in this marketplace, it'd probably be more successful for me to call people losers more. And to, you know, Donald Trump called people lots of names in the Republican primary in, in, in people that, that the voters liked and they uh, to some degree and uh, and and people it was OK. Uh, and I think <clears throat> I was shocked years ago when I first started Common Sense. It seemed like it was it was at the end of the 90s. And that's his email and the Internet and all these things took off. And uh I remember being awfully shocked by just how nasty people would be in email. Um, and I had a little thing where I, you know, would respond to people who were nasty and tell them, don't ever send me an email that has this kind of language in it ever again, that it's rude. It's, it's simply unacceptable. And if you want to make a point about anything I've said, make the point. And if they did make the point after they said F you and you're a jerk and a loser and, the, you know, I would maybe address that point. Um, but it's and what was so strange to me, other than the fact that people would act like total jerks, was the fact that when I sent that email, they would respond with, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, it's all of a sudden they were a real person again. And I, I don't I don't really know how to explain that, but but there is something about communicating not on the phone, where at least you can hear the the tenor in people's voices, uh, not person to person. You know, I think a lot of people I know, I'm not so big on Zoom because I have to figure out whether I comb my hair or not, but uh, but a lot of people like Zoom. <laughs> you and I talk on FaceTime a decent amount. And you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to everything, but the but the plus of being able to see and hear, and it's always better if you can touch, you know, shake hands, you know, uh, slug your buddy in the arm, you know, hug your friend. Um, it it you know it makes us communicate better, more like we really feel. We're really not, as as many of us, as much as it seems, jerks, and uh, and and we need to we need to gravitate toward uh, lives that that bring out less of the jerk in people. Well, I suspect that a lot of this is due to just the normal being able to read faces, like you were suggesting. I mean, that's, that's your main yes. point is that what people are doing when they start using, you know the C word or the F word or, or just the, the worst calumnies you can imagine or, or, or really volatile. You went to the C word, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's several C words I was there, thinking there about. There are people you. mad at you right now. No, yeah, yeah. But it's about us and them. 
you can say the nastiest things about your enemies. And yeah. in a sense, that's almost necessary. If you really are fighting an enemy, you need to destroy them, right? If you're really fighting an enemy, that's what the human beings... I mean, if, if we're in a war, we're going to call the enemies pretty bad names. And that's probably necessary because we have to work up the, the moral energy to kill them. But the problem is, is that uh, when you can't see the person you're talking to, and, and, and among your friends, you might cavalierly uh, use some pretty vulgar language. A lot of people do. But when you're an email or uh, on Twitter or something, you don't see the person. You don't. You don't know whether they're all of a sudden all your normal feedback mechanisms are gone, right. and you're just sort of naked out there. And then maybe you're confident enough just to assume that we can go full blast, whereas full blast probably isn't the best method most of the time i don't like calling people vulgar terms mostly but i think there's a lot of, of vulgarity that i do dish back so i mean i i mean to me that one of the worst things happening in the, in the current age is this gender nonsense all the i don't i don't believe in gender i i believe it's a religion that i don't subscribe to i don't believe it's scientific at all uh so i'll say some pretty nasty things uh, and matt walsh's i don't know if you heard matt walsh's uh calumnies against uh dylan mulvaney uh, one of the, the, the... I, I haven't oh, I hadn't heard okay. that particular I mean I know Matt Walsh and so on but yeah there's a point at which it's not it's not helpful and and if it gets to a degree of nasty it it pushes people who might agree away and doesn't bring anybody there but I, I wanted to pick at something you said just a little bit because and I don't know that you disagree with me but just to to okay. put it in a different context which is I think that the the hate week, and you know, when you mention hate and war and so on, I think of 1984, which is one of the first novels that kind of, you know, got behind propaganda, and we have to convince our citizens to hate the citizens in this country and so on. But it's but it's it's interesting. You mentioned something to get people to kill in in a war, but I. I think those messages of hate, and in, and in some cases, um, I would hope when you've got a legitimate enemy, that you avoid the hate to keep mentally focused, but whip up, you know, you do want to whip up the public to say, look, we're going to go through sacrifices. We're doing it because they're really, really bad. But what's interesting is I don't think that's what motivates the soldier so much in that you can't keep that level of, of uh, I mean, first of all, soldiering, no matter what you're doing, seems, and I don't know a whole lot about it because I've tried to avoid it as much as I could, um, but it, 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 it just is a horribly frightening, you know, it, it's, it's physically, mentally demanding profession if you're in a war. It's less demanding if you're not in a war, uh, but, but, you know, if you're willing to risk it, I, I I would hope that our soldiers are there at the ready and never never go to war. But it it is much more, I think, about connectiveness of a unit that that it's it's the brother, it's the like the the uh, mini series band of brothers, or maybe it wasn't a mini, maybe it was a full series. Whatever it was, it was uh, it, it, one of the things that it brought home was that part of the military, which is banding a group of people together soldiers and and that bond between them is what allows them to do very dangerous things and and uh and training and stuff is what allows them to fire their weapon and and i think in most wars they point out that most people even in firefights never pull the trigger and fire their weapon and and but that that part of it is not the propaganda, you know, in other words, what, what they're doing in the military is not the same as the propaganda uh, for the for the folks back home. I remember my father, he was in World War II, and uh, he wouldn't buy anything Japanese or German for quite a long time. And he said bad things about the Japanese and the Germans for decades and uh, didn't really forgive them. Uh, though he had no I, problem with a local Japanese man. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, the Germans, I, German Americans everywhere. That wasn't his issue. I, but he certainly, the countries were his big, uh, he wasn't a big fan. Uh, and he said nasty things. I, as a, uh, I, I don't know if I was 20 yet, but uh, I think I was 19, 20, maybe, when I worked at this parking garage in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I worked with a guy who was 70-something years old. 
and um, he had been in World War II, and he that anyone would drive a Japanese car was a a crime. Uh, the Japs were evil, and that's the way that's the way it was. And you know, I looked at it and I thought, well, that's that's ridiculous. They've been they've been at peace all this time. They've had no trouble with peace, and the problem wasn't the Japanese people. But he lost two brothers in the Pacific in World War II. So it, you know, I very quickly picked up on that. This is probably not the guy to have an intellectual argument about how he ought to, you know, respect the Japanese more and uh, as a people. And uh, so it's, it's you know, there, there's that sort of thing. But but anyway, I just I just wanted to make that point because I think. um I, I think sometimes it's easy for people to say, yes, that's why those people go to war and and those people going to war, I think, are in in actually uh, under more control in some ways than the politics that is sending those people to war or not. One of my favorite philosophers, Herbert Spencer, uh, made it a a major distinction in one of his books uh, between the ethics of amity and the ethics of enmity. And he said that our moral life is dominated by two contrary systems of ethics. And many people are very confused about it. They pretend that they're all for the religion of peace and the ethics of amity, yet their willingness to go to really negative and hateful to others speech for uh, enmity has appalled him, but he tried to be careful that he thought it was very, very important because that was one of the most basic elements of human nature is that distinction between the in-group and the out-group. So I'm always fascinated by that, and I talk about it quite a lot. But this week's big talk was not about war, though war is certainly drumming in the background of our society. Yes. It was, it was economic disaster, and you wrote about it twice again uh, this week, uh, Tuesday and Friday. Is it still capitalism on on Tuesday? And the government sure seems to be in control of more and more. We had a uh, uh, Daniel Kean McKiernan, who's a, a regular uh, commenter and and uh, very smart guy, uh, and knows economics better than I do. I don't know. You're you're I think maybe in his his same league on that. He's an actual economist, though. He had a comment and basically reinforcing the whole idea of moral hazard. And when we cushion falls, I had a friend uh, who's a, a, a banker uh, back in Arkansas where I grew up, a friend from high school who uh, sometimes we text back and forth and uh, texted me saying that, you know, in, in 2008, they could have done things other than just bail everybody out. And, uh, you know, it's it. When you do that, it uh, it's it's not a good thing. It it does tend to reinforce behavior, um, and it it's sort of like to me, it's sort of like the pictures you've seen a zillion times if you watch cable news uh, or any news of the people leaving stores in San Francisco with their arms full of expensive, uh, you know, mink coats and and jewelry and so on. Um, there are people who are going to go. Gee, that's how the world now works. And and I think in the banking sector, uh, you know, this is and they're they're playing this as different than a bailout, and 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 it is different in some respects. Uh, but it's still the government in control of everything, and it's still the government making sure that certain people don't have to follow the prearranged rules. And, and look, I don't want anybody who has more than 250000 in an account to lose that money. But I don't really want a society in which people who see the sign that says, you know, we, we're insuring this up to 250000 and then don't do anything, that they get rewarded. And the person who is maybe not anywhere close to 250000 in a bank account but make some other error in their lives. Like maybe they forgot to get to court that day or they, they their car broke down or whatever. They're not getting bailed out. And, and look, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking for some huge new bureaucracy to follow all us little people around and save the day for us. Stop controlling the economy and saving the day for the big shots. And, 
And again, it's not hard to see how this helps the in crowd, the rich. We, we wonder why there's income inequality, but then we see policies that are designed to never allow anybody who's wealthy to, to fall and maybe not provide the same safety net for others, including the poor, but also the working middle class and, and poor. And and so it's, you know, the, the, the answer here isn't, oh, we've got to bail everybody out. The answer is, why do we have a system in which there's all these slush funds for people who make big mistakes? And if, you know, if we make it to where no mistake causes you any pain, why would you avoid making mistakes? And here I get, I get to bring up Herbert Spencer again, because in the middle of his essay on state tampering with money and banks, which is this very issue, he had his great epithem, his great line, his maxim. The ultimate result of shielding men from the effects of folly is to fill the world with fools. And that's the idea of moral hazard, is that is yes. if you always are bailing people out, then they aren't going to learn anything. And maybe what they learn is to do the thing that, uh, that gets them bailed out. And in this case, though, it was the customer's of the bank and not the bank itself that's been bailed out. But we're far from over with this issue. So who knows what's going to actually happen. But Biden did promise to guarantee whole all the customers, which had most of which was an only 2.7% of the accounts in the bank were covered with legal $250,000 guarantee right. and limit, as Daniel puts it in his comments. And Durek makes clear this this was done uh, under the commenter. Durek uh, makes clear this was done right. Because it's wealthy Democrats. I mean, this is a Democrat industry. Uh, almost all the people are Democrats. I don't really get it because uh, 20 years ago, everybody was saying that uh, it was a libertarian industry. Uh, there was a whole book written called Cyber, uh, Cyber. I forget what it's called. It was a horrible book. Um, uh, but uh, but basically, the oh-so-libertarian uh, Silicon Valley people, and now they're all Democrats. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I think I think that I mean, not that there aren't libertarians who work in the tech field and so on, because there's tons of them. But um, but I don't see it as a libertarian field so much. Maybe it was seen that way early on because there were a number of libertarians and there were people with money who aren't Republicans. So, I mean, the, yeah. I mean there are Democrats in most. You know, I think if you look at the super rich, you'll find that the majority of them are Democrats. Sure. So and one of the reasons is that the Democratic Party is very helpful to the super rich, even as they claim that the super rich are the cause of all our problems. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting little problem. You know, the left always talks about how the right is, you know, hypocritical, you know, religious and censorious. And there's all, all the things they say about right wing people. But the left seems just as hypocritical as uh, the right to me. I mean, I just don't see that anyone gets off from those kind of charges. No. No. Well, none of us, none of us do personally or politically or anything else. But some some folks, especially those who actually are in Washington with power, man, it's like it just oozes out every pore. Um, hey, uh, uh, I wanted to give everyone an invitation to a beheading. And uh, I, I mentioned this hearing to you, and I think you were more upset by it than I was. This, and what uh, was the hearing? I know I've forgotten what it was. What, what did you write about <laughs> invitation to a beheading? I, I don't remember anymore. Come on, Tim, pay attention here. Yeah, I don't know if I can. It, it, this know, was the uh, three days ago. The, That's a long time. The hearing about uh, um, that on the on the Twitter files. That's the House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, and it's basically looking at ways that the FBI, you know, uh, colluded with Twitter and things like that to censor folks, to get Twitter to censor folks. And, you know, the Democrats, or at least a lot of them who are in power, seem to think that any anybody who mentions that is, is a terrible person because it's only conservatives who are being censored. These censors uh, are helping Democrats. I mean, what's the, what's the problem? And, and, you know, that I'm being a little facetious, it really kind of really a tiny, tiny bit 
because that's how they think. I mean, what? how else do you justify if, if the FBI were meeting with Twitter to censor what, what Democrats are saying, what liberals are saying? Uh, you don't think folks would be going crazy? And where where is the ACLU? What a sad, sad state of affairs that, that the ACLU, which used to be respected by people who disagreed with them on all kinds of things, they are worthy of zero respect. A lot of excellent attorneys on the First Amendment, but a partisan socialist Democrat uh, organization now through and through. And it used to not be that way. It's really, really sad. And they're, they're a big, very influential uh, uh, organization. And, and the fact that they have flipped from a principled defender of free speech uh, from a pretty left-wing perspective to a, you know, free speech, if it helps our political cause and not so much for free speech anymore, if, if, if it doesn't, or at least we just shut our mouth about anything that's, that's stomping on someone's rights. That's, you know, helping Democrats really sad. Now here, this is, I, I went on a rant about the ACLU and they deserve every bit of that rant and more, but, um, and it's sad because what a, what a wonderful organization once upon a time, but this is about uh, Michael Schellenberger and, um, and Matt Taibbi, uh, two excellent journalists and, and excellent journalists that, first of all, neither of them are like right wing. Matt Taibbi is not like a right wing guy. He's, he's, he's a Bernie Sanders supporter, for goodness sake. And, uh, and I know less about Schellenberger, but it, it, these are folks who uh, have been honest about reporting things have been diligent, have been well-respected, have won numerous awards, and they come to Congress about the Twitter files, and the Democrats don't engage with anything that's been found out, and with any of the charges that they're saying, look, hey, this is obvious collusion between the government and social media to censor certain opinions. This is 1984-ish stuff. Uh, and the Democrats could care less. Instead, they act like complete asses and um, and treat these men like uh, like you're not real journalists, like like Congress gets to decide who's a real journalist or not. And it, it kind of shows us what sort of journalist they wouldn't consider real journalist if Congress did get to decide who's a journalist. What a, uh, just a, the spectacle of it. I encourage people uh, <laughs> who may be going, Paul, stop, stop hyperventilating. I'm not sure what you're talking about. We'll go to uh, invitation to a beheading. This is commonsense.org. And uh, there's a link there that you can go watch the hearing. And uh, it's right out of the gate. Uh, you see how serious the problem is politically and personality-wise in our Congress. Yeah, those uh, three women that I could think of, uh, I think you mentioned three women uh, yes. from the Virgin Islands and from Texas and wherever uh, the former Democrat, uh, head of the Democratic Party uh, hails Florida. from. Florida. 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 Yeah. Uh, they were awful. I, I'm not sure I've seen worse interrogation ever on, on screen. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to get much worse than this. Obviously uninformed, ill-informed, and uh and then nasty. So it's <laughs> like it's like you're not it's not just that you've got a point and you're being a jerk about it. You have no point. You don't know what you're talking about. And it's obvious to anybody in the room who does know anything about the subject. And now you're making an ass of yourself. So we got the most comments of, on this piece, too. Uh, we got the most number of comments. Yes. From Daniel, Durick, and Pam. Pam came in again. And, uh, and uh, it was kind of amusing. Uh, in fact, it was more than amusing. There was some good stuff in there. Yeah, it. I, I like Drick there. He's usually short and to the point, 
never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake, which he said is paraphrased from Napoleon. Uh, I never really knew who uh, who said that, but uh, I believe him. And, I heard uh, it from Napoleon, but I've heard it from other people too. So it might be one of those. We don't know where it came from, but we think it came, you know, everybody thinks it came from Napoleon or Clausewitz or somebody. I'm not sure. I should look it up. And I think here Daniel makes a good point. It's like four paragraphs. People should go uh, look at this comment. But he talks about the Obama administration and Democrats in general kind of getting to a point where they are the establishment. They're now pro-corporation. He doesn't quite go into that, but he mentions kind of the corporate mentality. And, and basically that they don't have to pay attention to what these people are saying. They are so quick, and we spoke about it a little bit earlier, talking about people as losers. They are so quick to dehumanize their opposition that, of course, they don't have to listen to their arguments. They're not human. And and that is the you know if, if they're not the right race or they're they're sexist racist you know uh, uh, hate they're hate people that's what they say about conservatives therefore I don't have to listen to anything they're saying and of course you know not that there isn't some hate on both sides of this aisle but um, but here it's largely an excuse not to not to listen and and of course you know these the uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the the woman from uh, the Virgin Islands and so on who were who were haranguing uh, the the two people testifying uh, they didn't have any any charges oh you uh, we found out you're actually a horrible criminal no it was that they're not really journalists even though you know it that doesn't even stand up it, it'd be rude if they said it to someone who was just a blogger just a blogger not a very well known you know, writer hadn't written for all kinds of different publications and been, you know, renowned. Uh, it'd be kind of rude to put them down because, you know, they're, they're still a journalist and what they say should still be listened to and decided it's good or it's bad, it's right or it's wrong, not on the basis of how famous they are or how much money they've made in the past. Um, so that's obnoxious. But here they are doing it to people who it's like, where have you been? Oh. And the delegate from Virgin Islands frankly said that these two people are her enemies. They're enemies of what we stand for. I like Daniel's conclusion to his second comment. He said, the inclination on the left to censor has developed because, in general, and not just with respect to recent events, the left cannot win in a contest of reasoned argument. That's what it appears to be, because these three women were engaged in ad hominem. This is exactly what talking about their credentials and, you know, or, or trying to solve them with some uh, collusion and being spoon fed arguments. That's part of the deal is that, you know, or they just, you know, puppets of Elon Musk is what they were trying to uh, imply. Why did they want to say that? Because they want everybody to dismiss them, their arguments and their information and their facts and everything they're saying, rather than deal with them. Because they have nothing to say. I mean, they, they, there's no coming back from this. They know that they're on the wrong side. In America, if you're off the side of censorship, you've pretty much given up the white flag of, flag of reason argument. I mean, you basically said, yeah, we don't have anything. All we have are guns and, and invective. It just shows, you know, how how far down the, the drain, the toilet uh, things have, have gone that, that someone, you know, is not self-aware that you know, first of all, I don't know anything, and second of all, I'm I'm just making a, a, an argument that couldn't possibly, God help us, uh, be successful in a country that believes in freedom of speech. But let's uh, speaking of the First Amendment and freedom of speech, the right to petition, uh, uh, my former home state—not former, I guess—is my home state when I was a, a kid. I guess that's former home, whatever. I don't know what it is, but it's one of the 50. It's your Arkansas. former home or your home state. How's that? Yeah. But anyway, uh, they have uh, they have a wonderful initiative. Well, had a wonderful initiative process. Over the last 10 years, they have done everything possible, that legislature, to destroy it. Uh, we have uh, filed suit in federal court uh, against 
parts of the law. There's now new parts that will need to be added. Uh, it's just a monstrosity. And they're not alone. It's happening all over the country. And it tends to happen now. Uh, a lot more Republicans, the Democrats finally in Arkansas, who used to help the Republicans gut the process, have now started to stand up for it. And that's that's nice. There's a provision in, in uh, and what they're trying to do basically in Arkansas is to amend the constitution with a simple statute. They've tried to change the initiative process by putting constitutional amendments on the ballot to you know make it tougher for the people to use. But the people of Arkansas are, are stupid and they go to the polls and say no. And so they haven't been able to gut the process like they've wanted to. So they've decided, well, we'll just pass these constitutional amendments by statute. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the uh, former Trump uh, uh, press secretary, uh, is now governor of Arkansas, is going to sign the monstrosity. It'll be sued, hopefully overturned, because otherwise you have would have to kind of say, well, the legislature can amend the Constitution any, any day they want to uh, without the people. I mean, it's just totally an affront to good government law, any belief in, in democracy. Uh, but here, uh, Daniel makes a point that actually a number of people have started to discuss, and that is uh, that, you know, voters may at some point just basically say, you can't touch this process, uh, and that, you know, you, you, can't, you can't depend on uh, the legislature to, you know, do anything but, but wreck it. And uh, in, in North Dakota last November, term limits uh, were passed. And the, that term limit measure had a provision that said uh, this uh, part of the Constitution cannot be amended by the legislature, but only through a citizen initiative. And it did that because otherwise the legislature just keeps popping things on the ballot to try to overturn it. And the people have had enough. And and so the legislature is now in North Dakota trying to, to do that anyway. We'll see what happens. There'll be a court case and so on. But it's the sort of thing that that uh, needs to happen, I think, on initiative and referendum. And it, it's sad because you hate to lock in and, and prevent the legislature from considering anything in this whole area of law because there might be a need for them to help at some point or to fix something or a problem but they're they're bad 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 legislators and and so it it makes perfect sense because otherwise all they're going to do is if 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 the process were screwed up and couldn't be fixed uh without the legislature well then it'd be screwed up and couldn't be fixed because they're not going to fix it and and so it it's sad uh California has a thing where a provision in their their initiative and referendum that a statute, not just a constitutional amendment, a statute has to be, if it's passed by the voters, it has to be sent back to the voters. And the legislature cannot amend or repeal it without sending that back to the voters. And to me, you know, my first blush on that, and I'm not a big fan of legislatures, but I I, I want that you know, the legislature has to have some power to check the other branches and they're supposed to represent us, even though, frankly, they don't. But um, but so you you hate to see that, well, they'd have to take the time to have an election to make any little change, but you can't trust them. So you have to do that. And the truth is, that's where more and more states will go. If we can't get some handle on our representative branch in a representative government, if the representative part doesn't work, all you're left with is government and bad government. So it's like this, this is, uh, we see that one of the things we've talked about a little bit uh, uh, at this is commonsense.org is having much smaller districts where politics is not a, how much money do you have? Cause we've got to reach these 700,000 voters you know every congressional district the average is 760,000 people you can't walk and knock doors you can't you can't beat tv ads and direct mail with shoe leather in a in a district that big and uh you know 
people in California, that legislature, you know, for years, I wondered, why is this legislature so bad? And part of it is the average uh, House seat is 500,000 people. The average Senate seat is a million people, bigger than a congressional district. And uh, and you just, you have to have money. You have to have connections to the entrenched political interests to be able to jump in and, and run in a district like that. So you've got this whole political apparatus that stands between people and public office. You have small districts. Uh, I always think of New Hampshire, where their house districts, the average size is 3,000 people. They have 400 members, almost as many House uh, representatives in the New Hampshire House as in Congress. And average district size, 3,000 people. That means that you're going to hear from the folks. You know the folks back home. You know the folks you're representing. And someone coming in with a bunch of big money to viciously attack you in 30-second spots or in slick, you know, direct mail, I don't think it's going to work. That means you don't need a huge bureaucracy in Washington to control campaign spending and create these wonderful elections where money doesn't have any influence, which is just a joke. And and the more we do the campaign finance reform, the more it's a joke. Nobody's found anything that doesn't help big money instead of hurt it. And I kind of start to think that that's the design, but small districts would just wipe out the ability of big money to decide. Uh, and, and they still don't decide even when they can run a zillion TV ads, we still have to take responsibility for our own vote. But the whole dynamic of elections changes with small districts. So there's, there's my little, uh, my two cents for small districts, because that's, that is, you know, uh, I love term limits. I think that's a, that also helps on campaign finance issues and other things. And you can see the, the collateral benefits it has uh, uh, in addition to getting rid of some people who it's time for them to go. But, uh, but small districts, I think are the key to having real representatives. And I, I love direct democracy. I love the initiative process and referendums and the people being engaged because that's the, the name of the game is the people being engaged. But you can't run government by initiative. It's just, it's too slow. It can't, and it doesn't need to happen super fast because people need the time to think about what they're doing. You need representatives who will do a little bit of the, you know, specialization of labor um, so that the public doesn't have to pay attention to every little thing. We need people who actually represent us. And that's lost. And I think almost everyone, far right, left, in between, almost everybody realizes these guys are not representing us, that we've lost it. It's lost. And if you really believe in, in democracy, if you really believe in representative government, uh, we got to do something to get it back. That's not at all what Pam thought you were talking about. Uh, Pam thought, why should you complain? Because they're your people. You know, Huckabee Sanders, uh, you, you're the Republicans. <laughs> she said, uh, what do you expect from them? Fairness? Get serious, Paul. Get serious. Frankly, I do expect. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not shocked, but I'm disappointed in Republicans and Democrats all the time. And we talk about it. And and look, I'm, I'm, I'm more, you know, likely to vote for a Republican than a Democrat. I don't, I don't think anybody who reads my stuff isn't going to be shocked that, you know, that I think the, the Democrats are even wackier than the wacko Republicans. But I also can't imagine that anybody that kind of honestly reads and thinks about what I've written would think, oh, he just whatever the Republicans say, he's all for that because we beat him up quite a lot. And, uh, and in fact, you know, there have been articles in the past where they've mentioned, you know, different people have mentioned me attacking Republicans at different times. And attacking maybe isn't the, isn't the right word because it's not like I got in a fist fight or anything, but just taking them to task. And, and uh, there were a lot of people who uh, have done that. You know, I, I work with other Republicans who, um, you know, are Republican, but not 
in favor of everything every Republican does or the party does. And I don't consider myself a Republican, but I do think I'm I'm a libertarian who would be classified as an as an independent who most independents, if you look at polling or leaners, they they you know they're independent. They don't like the Democrats, but they're gonna vote for the Democrat almost every time, or they're gonna vote for the Republican almost every time. And and uh on on the House, Senate, a lot of things like that, I'd be much more apt for Republican because even if my member isn't my favorite or whatever, I don't want the l- completely lunatic communist <laughs> Democrats to be in charge of the whole chamber. At the same time, I could see a scenario in which I'd be for a Democrat running for president if I thought they had the right you know, issues on, on key issues and the Republican didn't. Um, but I would be very scared if that Democrat wasn't having problems with the Democratic Party. And and I point this out because a lot of folks in the media who who don't understand Republicans and don't want to, they just want to demonize them. They don't really care to understand them. Trump had all kinds of fights with the Republican establishment. And it just showed to the media that he can't get along with anybody. It showed to rank and file Republicans that maybe this is the guy we've been looking for because we don't like those guys either. In the same way that a lot of Democrats I know, uh, if they liked Bernie Sanders more than they liked uh, Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, well, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was at the the, uh, DNC at that point, was I think the head of some uh, chairwoman or whatever, and did all kinds of things to help Hillary Clinton, that, uh, anti-democratic things in my mind and in their minds. So the Democrats, that's part of the allure of Bernie Sanders, is that he's an independent. He's not a Democrat. Yeah. Be- and because so many Democrats and progressives despise the party. Um, and And so that dynamic is almost never talked about in the media. Um, I, I guess they think it's... You know, they think that the the public who knows it already, if they're engaged in politics, that somehow it's too complicated for them. But the truth is, it's too complicated somehow for the media people to, to you know, be able to to comment about that and not pretend that everything's black and white. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I brought it up is just simply to get that from you, because I don't think Pam really understands the nature of politics in America as it is, uh, where the dissent lies. Uh, and who is dissenting. And there's a lot more dissenters than she thinks. I think she sees it as uh, great Democrats and evil Republicans. And that seems to be her attitude. Though, you know, I I do want to say one thing about Pam. She could be a robot, an AI, and I wouldn't be shocked to discover it because... Because Because of some of the things she says are almost just... It's a little off. And and not smart. Not a smart argument. And sometimes other times it, it is a smarter argument. I did like her line, as I mentioned earlier. I thought that was pretty good, even though she called them losers. But I, I, got, I laughed at la- out loud, I think, when I read it. But um, she and and I think Democrats, uh, they, you know, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'll go there because um, that it, it might be a whole can of worms. But um, sorry about that. <laughs> um Anyway, that's that uh, uh, the the initiative referendum process is supported. We've done polls, uh, all 50 states, individual state polls. Every state supports it. The closest it is, is two to one support. Um, So none of the legislators ever, you know, with a few rare exceptions, even propose getting rid of the initiative. Where it exists. Where it exists. None of them would want to bring it back. And of course, big labor and big business would fight bringing it to any state that didn't have it. But where it exists, they're going to do everything they can to undermine it. They don't support it. Uh, And, and, you know, they'll come out and say stuff that they won't say publicly, uh, you know, that they don't believe the people are up to it. And they certainly don't think the people should be second guessing them. And that is, it's just, it, 
it's pervasive in all of these legislatures. And it it's sad. It's 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 you know, it it's a constant fight. Every January, I know my you know, email inbox is going to be full of people going, this is what they just, you know, they just proposed. Um, and sometimes the things that, you know, that have been were proposed 20 years ago in the Supreme Court by a nine to nothing unanimous ruling struck it down. Eh, they're going to do it again. Um, I mean, they they don't know about the Constitution. They don't care. And it's just it's it's ugly to see it happen. And it's important for people. And I, I like uh, attorneys. And I'm involved in a lot of cases where, you know, we're we're trying to knock down restrictions that legislatures have put up that are unconstitutional. And the courts tend to look at any legislation, any law that's been passed, with the presumption that it was passed for a good reason, and here it is. And and if we can construe it in some way that makes it constitutional, we will. But that the, the attitude is kind of this was passed by a legislature that represents the people. And the presumption before we look at the details is that it's probably something that they believed in and cared about it and is good. Now, I don't want to overstate that, but that's the view. I think the court should have the view that, oh, this is something that the people who want to monopolize lawmaking have proposed to try to block their competition, which is the people acting directly. And I just think that's obviously true. If you look at the legislature, I mean, if these judges had to look at everything that was introduced around the country, they would see 99% is anti-initiative and obviously trying to kneecap anybody who might try to do an initiative. And, and so why pretend? Why wouldn't you... Why wouldn't you want to look at it, not with some glossy, you know, law book, here's how it ought to be, but what's the reality? And so I'm always looking for our, our attorneys to state the reality that this is another attempt by the legislature to block this process, which is competition for their monopoly powers. And it, it makes a difference in how much money they can raise and how much power they will have. You're Friday piece, today's piece, old woke, not new, is um, kind of an interesting piece in regards to the partisan clown world partisanship that we've been dealing with in this episode. I mean, that's kind of what we're dealing with with Pam and 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 generally with people is is people are in a kind of clown world partisan area, not dealing with reality. They're dealing with their fantasies. They're and they're what what they what their wish lists are, and they don't really consider anything broader than that and that's a real problem it just expanding on on the piece earlier in the week about uh about capitalism and so forth among the right-wing people there's a lot of charges that uh the silicon valley bank was horribly woke and that's why it went broke it's right. woke and it went broke and of course it was woke uh and many of its people are woke and they obviously say woke things you talk about one of the woke things they say but they didn't as far as we can tell give $74 million to Black Lives Matter. And there's been a lot of probably not true things said about it. Right. And the big truth about the failure of the bank is, as you say, right there at the end, is that they did the wrong thing. But you cannot understand why they did the wrong thing, because this is a tough time to make money in the in, in the banking business. Uh, it really is. When, when you had zero interest rates and uh, inflation was getting out of control, and so, of course, the Fed did... The thing the Fed will always do at the last moment is that they will not allow hyperinflation. Uh, this is actually an interesting thing for me personally, because I became interested in economics and politics really in 1980, late 70s. And we were going through a, a stagflation at the time. And I began reading a great deal about economics. And... I didn't believe what libertarians and right-wingers were saying, that we were going to experience hyperinflation. I didn't believe it was for a second it was going to happen, because whose interest is that in? Every time there's a hyperinflation, the government falls and the banking system falls. So the, our central bank isn't going to allow it. I just I actually predicted what ha actually happened is that Paul Volcker came to his senses, cut back on on uh, on you know right. on easy money. And just let it happen. 
and it had to be a corrected. It was a it was a deep recession. It was a deep recession. And Pam and your Pam, your Pam. I mean, maybe I'll call her your Pam from now on. Your Pam actually uh, uh, doubled down on that. That the problem is the Fed is that you know raised interest rates and you know how awful they are. But what does she want? Does she want to have the government fall and the, all the banks fail and we get a Hitler? I mean, that's kind of what. Well, I well, and and this is is something that most people aren't aware that since two thousand and eight. Now, the 2008, you know, recession, depression, whatever that was, um, you know, those definitions are, are very fluid now. But uh, whatever that was is long over, right? Except it's not over. Because from a monetary standpoint, the the Fed, you know, basically said, we're going to cover everything. We're going to make everything liquid. And that was true in 2009 and 10 and 2011 and 2012 and and then 2013 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. Was that when the first first rate hike came? Wasn't it 21 was the first rate hike since 2008? The first time that the easy money was no longer easy. And and during the latter Obama uh, time and during Trump's time, there were a couple times that they, they talked about maybe raising interest rates and, and the markets would kind of crater a little bit, you know, just have a couple of days of, uh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, at some point, can that go on forever? Isn't that at some point going to have hyperinflation? And that's what Pam is not paying attention to. And there, there's also Pat who who uh, comments on the page. And uh, and Pat is is uh, almost 100% always sensible, maybe is 100%, but she had a, a comment as well. But it, that's what Pam's missing. Her view is kind of, well, the Fed just needs to turn their switch. Did nobody tell them to turn their switch down now? At some point, you can't just have easy money forever. Um, and maybe you can. Maybe that's the maybe uh, AOC and and others are right that that modern modern monetary theory is basically the the government just keeps printing money and and it's all going to be okay. And and there are a lot of us like you and me who are very skeptical about that. Like yeah yeah I don't consider modern monetary theory to be very modern or very theory. Uh, I just think it's 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 a joke uh, and it's doing precisely what politicians want to do is always give the people something that seems free, but which actually helps the politicians because the people who get the money first are in the state. The people insiders get the advantage of new money and it's, it's a racket. It's the whole thing is a racket and it's, it's working against the little guy in almost every one of its manifestations. And it's really good for insider businesses and insider groups of people like, government employees i mean it's good for them because they get they get the advantages of what they want you know they get they get the advantage of new money when it hasn't had the inflationary effect yet anyway uh so i thought it was a very interesting week in terms of of feedback on your site uh also the clown world partisanship you know it shows itself up in quite a few different ways yeah well and i think uh i think there'll be plenty to talk about next week with some of the uh the different things happening. Uh, and what, what's interesting to me too, and, and a little bit scary, uh, is the world's uh, the world's changing. It doesn't skip a beat. It just keeps on going. And, uh, and there are some scary things happening all over the world. And it, it'd be a really good time for some folks with their head on straight to be at the White House, in Congress, different places um and and in our neighborhood so all of us i mean i I kind of feel like uh these next four or five years are really important years for the future of this society and uh and this world and um and any any role we can play on it uh we sure need to and for the listener and watcher, I guess that means going to thisiscommonsense.org and reading you five times a week. That's true. That is true. 
Okay, I think we could probably uh, say goodbye and uh, see you next week. <laughs> All right. Isn't there? Isn't there like uh, some some animal that gets up and says, uh, "That's all, folks." You're right. Was that a pig or a duck? That was a pig, a wasn't duck, it? I think. Or was it a? Well, that's pig. That's Porky Pig. That's all, folks. This has been This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vercola, and we've gone through the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org. And you probably want to get out of here. But remember, bookmark thisiscommonsense.org. Like and subscribe and do all the things on SoundCloud and Rumble that you can think of. We're done. <laughs>